0: When do we open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. We've been studying the book of Revelation the last few months. And we've seen in chapter 1 a vision of Jesus in his glorification. John here in the island of Patmos sees Jesus... And his glorified state, in chapters 2 and 3, we see the church age, the spiritual condition to the seven letters of the churches in Revelation. Then in chapter 4 and 5, we see the rapture of the church, the throne of God, and there the 24 elders and the four living creatures worshiping the Lord in heaven. Now what we were introduced to in chapter 6 of Revelation, the last time we were here studying this book, is that after the rapture of the church, the Holy Spirit is removed from the world, which is now retaining or restraining the judgment of God, the wrath of God on this earth. The Holy Spirit is removed now, and that is the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the end as the Antichrist is rising in power here and the... Sixth chapter of Revelation, who is possessed by the devil. And we saw those first six seals of that scroll that was loosed by the Lamb. And we know that every single one of these seals represent the wrath and the divine judgment of God upon this earth after the rapture of the church. The first seal that is loosed on that scroll represents a false peace. And then we see the second seal that is loose represents war. And then the third seal, famine upon the entire world as we've never seen. The fourth seal, a death, the likes that have never been experienced before. The fifth seal, we notice and we look at it as persecution uh, to the Christians and to the believers, those that would confess their faith in Jesus Christ. And then the sixth seal would represent worldwide fear and cataclysmic disaster it speaks of. But now here in chapter seven, after we're introduced to the first six seals of the seven seals, before the seventh seal is loose in chapter eight, we have an intermission. And I want you to take notes on this because today the title of the message is the seals and the sealed the seals and the sealed. And we see here in chapter 7 an intermission before the seventh seal is loosed in chapter 8. And it's important that we see as we're studying this book that we understand in the seven-year period of the tribulation, now we are at the three-and-a-half-year mark. And now we're entering into the great tribulation. But chapter 7 is a response to the last verse that we read in chapter 6. What is it that we see here in Revelation 6, 17, where John says, For the great day of his wrath has come. John is sure of one thing, that in the last days God's wrath is being poured out upon this earth. And the great now wrath has come. And notice what he asks, Who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? I want you to circle that, underline that in your Bible there in the 17th verse of the 6th chapter. Who is able to stand? Because here in chapter 7, he answers that question. Who is able to stand in this day of wrath? Well, tribulation saints are. Those that are sealed by God are. And that's exactly what we're introduced to in this chapter. As we are going to unpack this chapter, we're really going to explain it. We're going to seek to understand what God has for us here. Because we're introduced to two groups that come to faith in Jesus Christ after the rapture of the church. The Jews and the Gentiles, two different groups. Some people say, will anyone come to faith in Jesus after the rapture of the church, during the tribulation? The answer to that question is yes. <laughs> and we, we are introduced to those people, to that group, in chapter 7 of Revelation. They come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation period. Who are those groups? The 144,000 Jewish people got special witnesses and then a second group, which is a Gentile host that is saved through the witness of these 144,000. Now, why is this chapter so important? I want you to remember this and take note of it because God here is reminding us that he demonstrates his grace, that God demonstrates his mercy even in a very dark time. Even in a very dark time, God is demonstrating his grace. Even in a very dark time, God is demonstrating his mercy. Even in a dark time, many will be saved. It's been said before that the more the beast fans the flames of repression and oppression, the more the Holy Ghost fans the flames of revival. You see, during the tribulation and the great tribulation, we're going to see in Scripture that many people come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. More than any type of revival that we've ever seen. And it's explained to us here in this seventh chapter, the sealed Jews and the saved of all the nations. Let's read here, Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After these things. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those that were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would remind us right now That even in the darkest hours, Lord, when your wrath and your judgment is to be poured upon this world and this earth, Lord, even then, Lord, you will show grace and mercy. And I pray, Lord, that if any would have come today in their dark hour, the dark hour of depression and the dark hour of discouragement or anxiety, that today they would meet your grace there. Lord, thank you, Lord, because you always demonstrate your grace. We are never too far from your grace. In Jesus' name, and together we said, amen. Now, notice here as it begins, and it says in verse 1, after these things, we are familiar with this term. It is the Greek word metatauta, which means after the things that just took place. After the six seals have been poured upon the world, it says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. (laughs) These four angels, as described here by John, as to what he's seeing, he said, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. What is he referring to here? I saw four angels standing at the four points of the compass, or at the four quadrants of the earth. North, south, east, and west. I said, I saw these angels that were from every direction, from every quadrant, affecting the entire earth. And notice what they're doing here. In verse 1, it says here, as they're standing there, holding the four winds of the earth. They were now in charge or in control now of the direction or the activity of the winds of the entire earth. And notice what happens here because it says that they were holding back the winds, that the wind would not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any now tree. As we're introduced to these four angels, we know it very clear. That the winds were destructive now, force of judgment here on these last days. So, what happens is that these four angels here are restraining the judgment that is to come. So that the wind would not blow, that, that, that. now force of judgment would not blow on the earth. The force of judgment would not blow on the sea or on any tree. These angels really essentially turn off the engine of the earth's atmosphere, the wind. Because we know that the wind now is used in the last days as a form of judgment. And notice what happens here in verse 2. Then I saw another angel, a fifth angel. And notice with the fifth angel as he ascending from the east, having a seal of the living God. This angel comes directly from the presence of God. Notice what it says here in verse now 2. Having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice, making an announcement to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Notice the message that he brings here. He cries out to the four angels that are given power to harm the earth and the sea as the power of the winds are giving over to them. And this is the message that he says, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Here comes an angel, a messenger from the very presence of God, ascending from the east, carrying out a seal of the living God, that he comes from the presence of God, and he cries out to those four other angels, wait. He says, wait. Don't harm the earth. Do not bring judgment upon the earth until we have sealed the servants of God. Now this is incredible here as we're reading here verse four because we start to see here verse three and four that he's saying don't harm until we have sealed the servants you see what is a servant a servant is a doulos a voluntary slave one that is serving the lord one is one that is actively voluntarily or willingly serving god and it describes servants here on the earth during the tribulation period, those that have come to faith during that time. But he says, don't harm the earth. Stop, wait now, restrain the judgment that is to come until we have sealed these servants now, hold back the judgment. Now, what is a seal? What does he describe here? What is he referring to when we look at verse three until we have sealed the servants? Well, a seal now is referring to an identification. It speaks of ownership, it speaks of protection, it speaks of authenticity here. And he's saying, until we seal the servants of God on the earth, do not pour out judgment upon it. You see, in this day, if you own something, you would what you would do is you would drip hot wax on that object that you owned. And then you would bring your signet ring and you would now impress on that hot wax which is on that object that you own, onto the wax, onto the object, and you left your seal there. What does this mean as you left your seal? It means that you own it. It means that your authority protected it because it was your possession. So what is it that the Lord is doing here? He is protecting, he's sealing now this group that he's about to describe. The fifth angel here that we see here in verse three and four comes bringing the seal of God and he tells these angels, restrain the judgment of God until the saints are sealed. (laughs) What do you see here? It's a picture of God's mercy. Why? Because his seal is a declaration that these people belong to him and that he would protect them even in a very horrific time. Later on in Revelation chapter 14, we see what that... Seal looks like. Write this down, Revelation 14:1. It says, that I looked, and behold, the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their forehead. <laughs> Isn't that incredible that the seal that he speaks of of those 144,000 that he's about to describe, that seal, that, that stamp, that ownership now is the name of God on their forehead? <laughs> It almost as it's it's of a mark that God is using to identify and to protect his people from the judgment that is to come. It was in the book of Ezekiel that the Lord did the same thing. That before he brought judgment to Jerusalem, that the Lord marked and he sealed those people that were crying out against it. Ezekiel 9 verse 4 says this, And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on their forehead of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. What is God doing here? He's doing that which he has done in the past, that which in every age God has done to that faithful remnant that turns to the Lord. What has God done historically even through the Old Testament? God has preserved and protected every single person that has turned to him even during judgment. You think about the Old Testament when God was going to judge the world and what happened to Noah and his family? He preserved them from the judgment that was to come. We look at the Old Testament as well and we see Israel as God preserved them and they were in bondage and he protected them and he delivered them out of their slavery. We look at as Jericho as when the two spies were sent out there, the 10 spies that were sent out there, and then Caleb and Joshua met Rahab, the prostitute. What happened as she let out that scarlet cord from her window? She was preserved in the midst of judgment. God always has a faithful remnant, a faithful witness that he seals, he protects now even in the midst of judgment. But isn't it interesting as we read even these four verses that we see that God has a special seal for his people? What does it remind you of? The enemy, the Antichrist, the beast. <laughs> In Revelation, he tries to be an imposter. And everything that he sees God do, he says, well, I can do the same thing. I can have my own mark. <laughs> we always think about the mark of the beast, 666, right? But oftentimes we forget the seal that comes to these people. The Bible says later on in Revelation, we're going to see that the Antichrist has a mark as well. He's an imposter. And that you would not be able to buy or sell without this mark. It would become now your, your, your way of life now, the mark of the beast. And we're moving so closely into an environment where the world is being conditioned into a cashless society where you need to have a certain credential to buy or to sell. You think about the restrictions that are taking place in our world today. The things that are required in order to visit, to shop, to travel. A conditioning that's taking place in the minds of people so that one day, think about this, when a global political leader rises up and says, would you just get this mark in order to buy and sell? And I promise you, now security, people will flock to it and be deceived. But notice this today, we also are sealed here. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says that we are sealed today by the Holy Spirit. How many of us can praise God that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit? You know what the Holy Spirit does is he seals us. He's our guarantee, Ephesians tells us. The Holy Spirit seals us as we have been given our lives to Christ Jesus. And he guarantees us that we are saved and that one day God is going to take us to heaven. But now here in verse 4, he's going to describe those that were sealed, that had that mark before the judgment of God was now poured further upon the world. It says this, And I heard the number of those that were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel that were sealed. These were the tribes of the nation of Israel. 12,000 of each tribe. These were specific Jews of all the tribes of the Jewish people would come to salvation after the rapture. Think about this. The Jewish people that have for so long from the beginning of time have rejected Christ, Jesus, as their Messiah would then realize and recognize that they have rejected the Messiah and they will come to faith in Jesus Christ during this time. 144,000 of them. Now, many people and cults have come up and say, well, we're the 144,000. The Jehovah Witnesses at one point thought they were the 144,000. And then they surpassed that number and they said, oops, we're not the 144,000 after all. But here the Bible specifically tells us who they are. It's the Jewish people. It's the nation now of Israel, the Jewish people. And it's so interesting because God has chosen the Jewish people to display his power. He, and think about this. Even from the Old Testament, God has chosen the Jewish people as his covenant people to display his special purpose and plan of redemption. It is through them that God has chosen it. Not because they were strong, but because they were weak. And God is saying, I'm going to use you to display my purpose and my power upon your nation through your people. But notice how also God has used the Jewish people. Why? Because our God-breathed Bible, the Bible that you have in your hand right now, was written by the Jewish people. And notice it was preserved by the Jewish people. The scriptures now, they miraculously handed them down from generation to generation, and they were so precise as to how accurately they were to preserve now the original text for us to have right now, the Jewish people passed that down to us, God's word by his grace. Then you also recognize that our Savior came through the Jewish nation. He was born out of the tribe of Judah. God has a special plan, a special purpose for the Jewish people even during the tribulation period. So he describes here the 144,000 or 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Isn't it incredible as we study here, even this, we we know that he has never forsaken his people, the Jewish people, even although they have forsaken him. That's our testimony as well, that he has never forsaken us, even as we have forsaken him. Notice, even the tribes right now, if you go to Israel, they don't know what tribe they belong to. <laughs> if you would ask them, what tribe do you belong to? Of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, they would not know. <laughs> but God knows who they are. <laughs> And it says 12,000 from each tribe are going to be sealed at this time. Let's look at the list. It says, verse 5, of the tribe of Judah, it says here now, verse 5, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed were sealed of the tribe of Manasseh 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Simeon 12,000 were sealed and of the tribe of Levi 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Issachar 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Zebulun 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Joseph 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Benjamin 12,000 were sealed As we look at these 12 tribes, oftentimes we study this and we say, well, what happened to a few tribes there? (laughs) What happened to the tribe of Dan? Why was it left out? Well, many commentators believe that the tribe of Dan was left out because that was a tribe that introduced the nation of Israel to idolatry in the Old Testament. And because of that, they weren't one of the ones that were sealed from the wrath that was to come here in the last days. But of these 12 tribes that make up the 144,000, they are marked. Notice they are sealed for divine protection. They are identified. They are recognized for God's special purpose. Why does God seal us? Not only for identification, not only for ownership, not only for protection, but God seals them there for a purpose. They not only were representatives of Christ during this time, not only those that accepted Jesus as we're going to see through the book of Revelation as Christ as their Messiah during this time, but also they were the group that became bold to evangelize and to share their faith during this time. You think about it, this is a time where the nation of Israel is suffering when the whole world is facing the wrath of God, but the 144,000 become bold evangelists for him during this time. That's why they're preserved. This is incredible now. You think about why is God going to such a far extent to protect these 144,000 Israelite evangelists now? Why? Because he wants a witness on this earth during that time. And it said that because they were sealed, they could not be harmed. Because they were sealed, they could not be harmed. The Bible tells us, just imagine during the great tribulation now, God seals these 144,000 Jews. And, and it is to believe that they were all around, spread out all around the world. And God now releases them to be witnesses to him all around the world during this time. Just think to yourself this, 144,000 grams at that time. <laughs> just evangelizing. 144,000 Paul the Apostles that are bold and going now and sealed by God's mark now and being bold to share the gospel to all nation, tribe, and people. Well, this is exactly what's taking place here. They're sharing their faith. They're being witnesses, and we're going to see that later on through the book of Revelation. These are the sealed Jews. But notice here the result of it, also the second group, that we're introduced to here in verse nine, the saved from all nations. Let's look at verse nine here as it continues. After these things, again, after these things, I looked and behold, this is what I saw, a great multitude, which no one could number. Would you circle that? Not only were they the 144,000 Jews, but then I saw a second group. And it was a group that no one could number, a multitude during the tribulation. Notice that he, as he describes what he's seeing here, of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues. Of all nationalities, of all tribes, of all types of race, it was very diverse. These are those that have given their life to Christ, but notice he describes them not to be on earth. The second group is in heaven already. Let's keep reading here as we discover now because these are Gentiles now who have been saved through faith during the great tribulation. We know these to be as tribulation saints. Did you write that down in your notes? Tribulation saints. Here we see the greatest revival in history. Notice they could not be numbered. Do you remember in the book of Acts when they could number how many came to know Jesus and then 3,000 were saved? And the next message that, that Peter and John gave, then 5,000 were saved and were easily so moved by the Holy Spirit working and very uh, impressed by how many people were coming to Jesus Christ where it says here that the, it could not be numbered now how many of them were saved. What does it speak to us? That in every age, every generation, there is a remnant because all, God always maintains a believing witness now, a believing witness. What happens? The gospel is being spread like wildfire during the time of the tribulation. It is in Mark chapter 14, verse 14, that the Lord says this, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And then the end will come. But let's look at here at these Gentiles from every tribe and nation and people as they are described to be in heaven. It says, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands. Where are these Gentiles, believers that were already in heaven? It says they're standing before the throne and before the lamb. This is incredible that these Uh, believers are described that are standing before the Lord and before the Lamb, what do you think they're doing? What do you think we will be doing as we're standing before the Lord and before the Lamb? They're looking at the face of God. Can you imagine that day when we're going to be before the throne and before the Lamb? Notice what we're going to be doing, looking at the face of God. Worshiping there. And notice it says that they're standing They're looking and beholding Jesus. Notice, they were accepted there in the presence of God. They may have been rejected on earth because of their faith, because they're standing for truth. When the lies uh, of Satan were very popular and, and being moved by the Antichrist, these now believers are standing before the Lamb and before the throne, looking at the face of God. And notice what happens here. They're clothed in white robes. It was earlier in Revelation chapter two and three that we saw that the white robes represent something, the righteousness of Christ. They're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. They're clothed in robes also for priestly service. So here you have this massive amount of group that are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, clothed as ready for priestly service to minister to the Lord. And it says that in their hand, they have palm branches in their hand. Now notice, the white robes symbolize virtue, the righteousness of Christ. But the palm branches symbolize victory. Why? Because this group were true overcomers. How do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. How can we be an overcomer today? Notice this, by the blood of the Lamb, because the blood of the Lamb is stronger than anything else that the enemy pulls against us. Greater is he who's in us than he who is in the world. Amen. And what happens here to this group? They're accepted now. And they're, not only are they accepted in heaven, it tells us that they're clothed in virtue, and in their hand, they have palm branches representing victory. <laughs> and just think about how they... Are there in heaven? Have they entered heaven after after suffering the persecution, after after going through so much suffering during the time of the persecution? Notice verse ten. What they're doing? They finally made it to heaven, and notice what happens here in verse ten. And crying out with a loud voice, they're not silent. They they're in heaven. It says they're crying out with a loud voice. That they're worshiping God with a great shouting roar. What does it say? Not only were they accepted in the presence of God, they were also joyful, joyful. This is exactly how we ought to be when we come to church and we're ready to worship the Lord. We're, we're standing before the presence of God as we worship the Lord, right? That's when we have to come to, the lo- to, to worship. And uh, Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that we get to worship you today. We're, we're not just sour sitting in the pew and say, oh, I can't wait till these songs are over because I want to get over this. This is exactly what we're going to be doing in heaven, worshiping the Lord. (laughs) And they were there in victory, standing in victory, joyful, shouting, praising God. Notice the lyrics of their songs. It says they're crying out with a loud voice. And what are they crying out? Salvation belongs to our God. We thank God for our salvation. They were thanking God for his grace, even through tribulation. God's grace is stronger than every trial. God's grace is stronger than every period of tribulation. His grace is still there to meet you. And the grace of God was there to meet them there as they turned to Christ. Notice what it says here as they're they're joyful. It says, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're thankful not only for their salvation. They're thankful and they're praising God for his grace, but they're thanking him also for his rulership, for his authority. Notice how they said here, and the God who sits on the throne into the Lamb, Lord, we thank you because you're sitting on the throne. We're praising you because you're in control. We're praising you because you're sitting on the throne. You have the authority now. And notice what happens in heaven as you're praising the Lord. And all the angels stood around the throne. This worship was contagious. Have you ever noticed when, when you see someone worshiping the Lord, what does it do to you? It's contagious. It stimulates you to want to worship the Lord as well. <laughs> it's a wow that these people are worshiping the Lord. What happens here? That the angels stood as well in heaven. Around the throne. So we have this multitude of people that are crying out before the throne. Then the angels stand around the throne. Notice what they do here. They they, they sit around the throne and the four living creatures, and they stand only to do one thing. They stand and they fall on their faces before the throne and they worship God. What a response here. What did he call this? This face-down worship. They're fully surrendered. They fall down before the Lord in submission. They fall down before the Lord in surrender. And, and notice as they, these angels are crying out, and they say this, amen. But we thank you because salvation belongs to you, amen. We thank you, Lord, because you're in control, amen. We thank you, Lord, because you have the authority, amen. Notice, blessing and glory, verse 12, and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power, and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Notice the song that they're singing. They fall down, they surrender to the Lord and they say, thank you, Lord, because you're blessing us. Thank you for the blessing of your glory, Lord. You are wise, they're lifting up glory, they're lifting up praise, Lord. We give you now praise, we're so thankful for you. Notice they bring thanksgiving to him. And say, Lord, you are full with honor, of power, of might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the posture of worship. You know what the posture of worship is? Giving God all of the glory. Giving God all of the glory. These angels are giving God all of the glory. And it continues on. It says here, then one of the elders answered. Verse 13, notice he has a question for John here. As you see this worship service taking place in heaven, it says, one of the elders answers saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes? And where do they come from? (laughs) Just think about this, this question that they ask now, John. Verse 14, and I said to him, sir, you know. John says, why are you asking me a question? You know the answer to that question. You know who they are. And he said to me, these are the ones, and here's the key as to why we know they're tribulation saints who came out of, circle that in your Bible, who came out of the great tribulation. What does it mean that these saints were? Tribulation saints, but not only that, they were martyrs. The saints that it speaks about here in heaven, there were martyrs. They were tribulation saints now that refused to deny their faith, that refused to take the mark of the beast, and because of that, they were martyred or they paid the ultimate price for their faith. They were killed in persecution, murdered, and now they were ushered into heaven. Notice what happens here now. And, and have been washed, verse 14, their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That is powerful there. You see, they have been washed. It speaks of here in verse 14. They came out of the great tribulation. These tribulation saints and their robes have been washed now in white now by the blood of the lamb that has made them pure. You see, they understood that it wasn't the fact that they were martyred but for their faith that gave them now the access to the presence of God. It wasn't their heroic faith that that, that made them pure now. It was only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that made them pure. It was only the blood of Jesus Christ that can remove the stain of sin. It wasn't their martyrdom. It wasn't their act of bravery. It wasn't that they were heroic now. It was only the work of Jesus Christ that can cleanse them and that can save them now. You know what it speaks to here, this washing that it refers to by the blood of Jesus? It speaks of spiritual purity. Spiritual purity. What is it that washes us? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all sin. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18? What is it that the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah? Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they should be as wool. Christ now had to wash them by his blood. They had been cleansed, and this is exactly what it's referring to here in verse 14. They have been washed their robes and made them white by the blood of the Lamb. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Their sins were washed by the blood of the Lamb. And they had the same right or the same access only by the blood of the Lamb to the very presence of God here. This is what it's speaking of. Now just imagine and think to yourself even in a time of heavy judgment even in a time of wrath on this earth many are still saved why because the god's grace his love is still being poured out do you see that there's so many times that we think well how can god pour out his judgment or his wrath upon this earth his grace now is still so sufficient that he's still willing and giving opportunity, and he's still patient that many would have come to know him as Lord and Savior, even during that time. Now we have to think about the love of God in regards to these times. How you know, God is so patient that even in a time of judgment, He still demonstrates His grace, even in the darkest hour, His grace is still there. Now notice verse 15 as it says this, therefore they are before the throne of God. These, these martyrs now that had given their life for Christ. Notice what they are. They're before the throne of God, or they're rewarded with access into his presence. Not only to see the face of God, but also to serve him. You see, this is the ministry of what we're going to be doing, worshiping him and serving him. Now in heaven, notice what it says. They are before the throne, looking at the face of God, but also to serve him day and night in his temple. Does he speak of a a, a tent or a tabernacle or a a structure that temple? No. Notice the temple that he's referring to is his presence that's going to give us shelter. They're there serving the Lord in his presence. Night and day, notice it says, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Isn't that incredible that we see here the mercy of God even on these? That God is going to dwell among them. He's going to reward them now. They're going to serve him day and night. And he will shelter them with his presence now. He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. This is exactly what we ought to have desire for today. Desire for his presence. You would say, Lord, we want to just serve you today. Lord, we, we, we know that in heaven, that's going to be our ministry to serve you. But we want to serve you. We want to be in your presence, Lord. We want to be ministered to you. We want to be before the throne. Do you remember what David said in Psalms 27 verse 4? One thing I've desired of the Lord. I think so many times we're so distracted with the things of this world that we desire many things. But not David. David the king. You know the psalmist, as he would have said, as he's there as a shepherd, then he goes and becomes a king now as he's running away from his enemies. He says, one thing I've desired of the Lord and that will I seek. I'm going to seek the presence of God that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing I've desired today, to be in the presence of God. But notice what else will they experience, these tribulation saints that are in the presence of God. Notice how the Lord comforts them the same way that He wants to comfort you in His presence. You ask yourself, well, wh- why is worship so important? You know, right? Worship is so important because God comforts you in His presence. That's exactly why worship is so important. God ministers to you in worship in His presence, He comforts you, He speaks to you through His presence. Notice what they're going to experience here. Verse 16, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. Why does it say that they're not hungering anymore or thirsting anymore? Well, because during the tribulation, there's not going to be any rain. There's going to be water pollution. They're, they're suffering. These tribulation saints, there, were, there, were, there was a famine that it described in one of the seals already in the previous chapter, but it says they're not going to be hungry and they're not going to be Thirsty anymore. In fact, notice as it continues, the sun will not strike them nor any heat. They're not going to feel any more pain. Just think about this. After suffering the persecution and the pressure of the Antichrist, after suffering hunger and thirst and this brutal persecution for standing for the message that is fiercely unpopular during this time of the Antichrist's lies now, heaven wholeheartedly receives them. What does he say? They're not gonna be hungry anymore. They're not gonna be thirsty anymore. They're not gonna have any type of pain anymore now. But notice what the Lord promises them. Not only his presence, notice as he promises this, his provision. Isn't it amazing that God, even through judgment, his grace meets us there? And what does he promise us there? He promises his presence But notice number two, he promises his provision. He promises his provision. That's what in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 10, it says, They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun will strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. God will always provide. Now notice that as it describes this next verse here. For the lamb, for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. You see, it says that the lamb does three things here in verse 17. The lamb becomes the shepherd. (laughs) The lamb becomes the shepherd. What does it say here in verse 17? The lamb who is on the midst of the throne, what is he going to do? Christ, shepherd them. When it says that the lamb is going to shepherd them, it means that he's going to feed them. They're not going to have need because the shepherd is going to feed them his loving care, his nurture now for their sa- of their Savior. They're in his presence. You know what the Lord is going to do for us? He's going to continue to shepherd us. The lamb becomes a shepherd. But number two, notice what he's going to do. Not only shepherd us, he's going to lead us. This is what he describes here. And lead them into living fountains of water. Maybe today you want the Lord to shepherd you. Well, he's there so available already now to shepherd you. Not only to shepherd you, notice what it says here, to lead you into living fountains of waters. Isn't this awesome now? It means he's going to lead them to springs of living water. He promises them abundant joy. Why? Because it's our shepherd. Do you remember the psalmist? What did he say? The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. I shall not want. The ministry of the shepherd, what is it? To feed, to lead, to now lead to springs of living water. But finally, this is how he's continuing to comfort these tribulation saints. He shepherds them, he leads them and provides springs of living waters. But notice, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't this amazing that as God knows when we're going through suffering, what tears from their eyes and tears of rejection The tears of persecution, the tears of sorrow, the tears of anxiety. What does the Lord do? He shepherds, he leads, but he also wipes away every tear from pain, from from sorrow in the presence of the Lord. David said in Psalms 56 verse 8, you number my wanderings. Lord, you know every time I wander. And you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God knows every single detail of our life. And he cares about every tear that you shed. Did you know that? He knows every single detail of your life. He cares about every single pain and suffering that we're going through. It says that even to these martyrs, what would the Lord do? He's going to shepherd them. He's going to lead them. He's going to wipe away every tear. I want to tell you this, even as we come to a close, that. This is in the midst of heavy darkness. The grace of God is there for people to respond. In the midst of heavy darkness, I want you may be even tonight here, they're at that place of darkness. This may be even your darkest hour and you've come to church and you say, well, I need the grace of God myself. I need it to be manifested in my life. Well, I wanna tell you, he's there to shepherd you. He's there to lead you and he's there to wipe away your tears. Even in wrath, even in the darkest hour, notice here, he displays his mercy. He displays his mercy. What are we to do now, As even as we read this chapter and we see the wrath that is to come, and we see the grace that is to come, we are to be waiting for our Savior and sharing our faith. Saying, Lord, I know that you can meet me in this dark hour. And as you meet me, as your grace is here to minister to me, what I want to do, I want to wait for you. I was coming home uh, this weekend this sunday from israel and we had landed in uh the airport and uh, i called my wife on the phone on the way uh here to the church as we were going to be picked up here and she said your son wants to talk to you on the phone (laughs) my four-year-old son caleb he gets on the phone and the first thing he says he says daddy you're almost coming home and i can't wait to see you And the Lord really ministered to me, isn't that the way we should be with our Father? Abba, Father, you're almost coming home, and we can't wait to see you. Lord, you're almost coming home, and we can't wait to see you. How many of you guys are ready to see him? Would you stand with me to pray tonight?